Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. With Robo Hair. Sprite Castle. Hello and welcome to Sprite Castle, the show in which I play, discuss, and review Commodore 64 games. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara, and on this episode of Sprite Castle, I will be discussing the castles of Dr. Creep. Now, do you happen to know who the real Dr. Creep was? You will by the time you're done listening to this episode. Now, before I get started with this episode's game, let's check the Daily Sun for this week's Paperboy headlines. Welcome back to another episode of Sprite Castle. I have to admit I have a little bit of a cold, so if you happen to hear me uh, sniffling or clearing my throat or sneaking a drink of water, that's probably what you're hearing, or if I sound a little stopped up, it is uh, sinus season. So every time the weather changes here in Oklahoma, uh, boy do I know it. I know it before I get out of bed. (laughs) I can tell you that the weather has changed. I hope everybody has had uh, a good week. I did a little bit of streaming over the past week or so. You can always find my latest streams on uh, YouTube on the Amigos Retro Gaming channel. So go to youtube.com forward slash Amigos Retro Gaming for my latest Twitch streams. Uh, Last week, as part of my review for the Mister, I reviewed uh, NBA Jam, which was a classic acclaim game. Uh, I've had that on my mind since watching... Insert Coin, which is a uh, new documentary that talks all about uh, acclaimed video games. It's kind of the, the 90s era. There's a lot about NBA Jam and Mortal Kombat and uh, that, that whole era of gaming. That was pretty interesting to watch. So there's uh, that video up on YouTube. And then, uh, of course, the last Sprite Castle video was uh, Ivan Stewart Off-Road. So if you didn't see that, uh, you can go check that out. And if you want to see the streams live, you go to twitch.tv forward slash Rob O'Hara, and there is a little button that says follow. And if you click that button, then you will be notified whenever uh, I start streaming. I typically stream on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Central. I didn't do that this week because I just wasn't feeling very well. But on Tuesday, I actually did stream. And what did I play? Oh, I played Donkey Kong, and um, which is funny because... I consider myself to be a a low intermediate Donkey Kong player, but I, what I found was it was very difficult to explain strategy while I was playing at the same time. So, uh, if you're if you're tuning in for some great tips and tricks about Donkey Kong, that might not be the stream. <laughs> but we all had a good time hanging out. Uh, speaking of the Mister, which I covered on the last episode of You Don't Know Flack, I also bought a old school, that is the brand, not a description, old school HDMI capture card, which is a USB capture device that plugs into your computer and has a HDMI port on the back. And so I'm now able to stream video straight from the Mister. That's been kind of fun. So um, I've reset up my mister. Now, um, I have HDMI going into a switch box, which has uh, allows for five inputs. And then I have the switch box going into an HDMI splitter. Uh, and I have the video from there going to two sources, the television that I play on and also my computer for video capture. So I just last week on Amazon bought a five pack of HDMI cables because now I need all these HDMI cables running around. Uh, and I was amazed that um, I ordered, this was the, you know how Amazon has their sponsored link and they have the sponsored package of five HDMI cables. And these are six foot cables with gold plated tips because you're not going to get good quality with just regular silver plated tips. No, no. You need gold plating. And I got a five pack of HDMI cables for $12, which is just amazing. I remember when I bought my PlayStation 3, you could either use HDMI or uh, composite. And uh, well, I'm sure component too, but I came with uh, composite cables and uh, my television. I had a tube TV. I didn't have HDMI, so I hooked it up uh, old school. And then when I finally got uh, a flat screen television, I went and bought, I went to Best Buy to buy an HDMI cable. And, um, 
the salesman kept trying to sell me this monster brand HDMI cable for $80. And I didn't end up buying it. I ended up going, I think mono price at the time I bought uh, the cables and I bought like three cables. And, and even then they were $10 each. And, and of course they were heavier duty cables and stuff, but I'm just amazed that we've gone, you know, in such a, a short period of time for people paying $80 for an HDMI cable to, um, you know, a five pack for $12. And I'm not going to argue <laughs> whether or not one is better than the other. I'm sure if you, uh, uh, you know, were trying to uh, tow a car that the monster one would probably outlast these, uh, these cheap ones, but, um, they seem to be doing fine so far. So I'm enjoying them. Uh, let's see on, um, this week, uh, you know, I am accepting, Questions from my 16-bit Patreon supporters. Uh, they're asking questions that I will answer on the on the uh, episodes. And this week's question comes from 16-bit Patreon supporter Steve Sharippa. Uh, and Steve's question is, do you have a history with the Commodore 128? And how did you think about the two back in the day? We owned a Commodore 64 and then a 128. And it was confusing as a kid to treat the 128 differently. For example, the 1571 dual-sided versus 1541, 80-column uh, versus 40-column, etc. Generally, he is looking for thoughts on Commodore 64 versus Commodore 128. Well, you know, I did not own a 128 as a kid. I got one later on in life, but um, I didn't own a Commodore 128. But I knew people that had uh, 128s. And, you know, there were some definite differences. I mean, an aesthetic and, and really, if you want to get into things, uh, you know, the Commodore 64 looks like, I mean, it kind of looks like a toy. You know what I mean? It looks like it's this little bread bin shaped thing and it's this weird uh, tan color. And it doesn't look like what we think of as looking like a serious computer, you know, the classic wedge-shaped computer that we got later on with the Amiga and uh, some of the, the later Atari computers and things like that. So, uh, which then, you know, kind of evolved into the shape of a traditional keyboard, like a USB, you know, a, a PC keyboard or something like that, or, or a Mac keyboard. So... I think the 128, and of course this is kind of well known that the 128 and then the uh, Commodore 64C uh, were redesigned to appeal and give the computer a little bit more of a serious look. Um, and there were things about the 128 that made it a more uh, business-friendly computer. Obviously 80 columns uh, is a big thing. If you've ever tried to do word processing on a standard Commodore 64 doing word processing, serious word processing or writing on 40 columns is not fun. Um, and you know, I don't know. It just, um, uh, you know, it gave it some legitimacy in the business world. I think the 128 and, um, again, the 1571 having uh dual sided disc, you know, to be able to double the capacity, um, you know, that, that was a nice feature, but, the best thing about the Commodore 128 is the worst thing about the Commodore 128. And that is that it is essentially 100% backwards compatible. And so there's a longstanding thing in technology that we've seen um, about software developers, especially the higher the budgets get on, on games and, and uh, things like that, of... Are they going to support a smaller number of customers or a bigger number of customers? And typically, the answer is they want to support a larger customer base. So if you were to write a game for the Commodore 128, and there were some games specifically for the Commodore 128, but not very many. But if you wrote a, spe a game specifically targeted for the 128, you're excluding 10 million or however many Commodore 64 users. But if you wrote a game that worked on the Commodore 64, it also worked on the Commodore 128. So why would you write a game that had, you know, for a system that had a much smaller user base and exclude the users of uh, or the owners of Commodore 64? And so, you know, that became the 128's problem. Now, again, uh, I think on... Um, 
if you look at you know utilities and, and business applications and things like that, I think there's more things available for the 128. But as far as uh, games and things like that go, uh, it really you know just never caught on. And then of course, uh, you know after the 128 and the C64, the uh, Amiga uh, is so close behind those that I don't know. I think people just just had a, a hard time transitioning. So. Uh, yeah, I did know friends. I had some friends. Uh, one of my friends in particular had a 128, and I remember we were, uh, you know, doing some basic programming. I think doing stuff with sound, like generating tones in the sound or something that didn't really work in in the Commodore 64, but worked in 128 mode. But um, yeah, there there was just such a, a low incentive to upgrade, especially if you already had a Commodore 64. And you had it because you were, you know, playing games and stuff. There just wasn't that much of an incentive to upgrade. Now, I will say that as far as my daily driver disk drives, I greatly prefer Commodore 1571s, even though I don't use them in the uh, dual-sided mode, double-sided. But they have a different technology for finding track zero. And so if you've ever turned on a Commodore 64 and loaded a game and heard that grinding sound that we're all familiar with, and that is the head banging up against uh, itself going to try to find track zero, whereas on a 1571, it can automatically find track zero. And that maneuver, that head banging, uh, is probably one of the, the biggest reasons that Commodore 1541 disk drives go out of alignment. And a 1571 doesn't do that. So um, they're much more reliable. I've probably, I don't know, I, I've maybe half of the 1541s I've, I've bought or found or acquired over the years have been out of alignment and needed some work. But every 1571 I've picked up still works and hasn't needed alignment, hasn't had any issues. So I think um, uh, longevity on the 1571 is uh, a, a lot more reliable. So um, I know that the 128 also has CPM mode, but uh, I never got into that. I had a CPM cartridge for a while for the Commodore 64 and never did anything with it. So I um, can't say I did too much with that. But I know that my uh, wife's dad owned a Commodore 128. And so when she and I moved in together, she brought that and I ended up inheriting it over time. And uh you know, I, we went through all their discs, and every one of their discs were things that worked on the Commodore 64. So there wasn't a lot of of uh, 128 software that they had uh, had had bought or used over the years. So yeah, I, I don't know. Um, uh, like I said, I I think um, the window between the 128 and the Amiga uh, and other machines that were that were coming out at the time was such a short window that it just didn't have enough time to. Uh, to really spread its wings. So anyway, that, that was kind of my experience with the 128. I, I do have one. I have hooked it up. Um, I had a 128D for a while that I actually uh, was very lucky to find through a Craigslist ad. It wasn't listed as a 128D. And uh, if you're not familiar with that, that was the uh, um, kind of a repackaged Commodore 128 that had a built-in disk drive and a, uh, you know, it was kind of a, a unique case and, um, you know, I messed around with that, but again, uh, the value on it was so much that it, it made sense to get rid of it. And plus I already had my 64 and, and I'm really just a 64 guy. And, and, uh, so, uh, I ended up turning it loose and, um, uh, passed it on to another collector. So, uh, but anyway, that's, that's kind of my thoughts of the, uh, 64 versus the 128. If I were shopping today, I don't think I would, uh, specifically look for a 128 unless you had some sort of uh, nostalgic connection to it and, and really like the aesthetic. Otherwise, I'd, I'd probably go for a 64. Although I know that I think I'm in the minority that I prefer the original 64, the bread bin. And I know a lot of people prefer the uh, 64C with the uh, slightly more ergonomic keyboard. Uh, on to some other news. Oh, by the way, thank you, Steve, uh, for the question, I should say. And if um, you want to send me a question, have it read and answered on the air, then uh, go over to patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Haran. You could look into uh, supporting the show and finding out how you can uh, submit those questions. Uh, on to some other news. I did see a new cartridge. There's a cartridge that uh, a few people have been talking about lately called the Kung Fu Flash Cartridge. Uh, it is a cartridge that allows you to flash uh, 
um, different cartridges, games, all sorts of things on it. Uh, it is on the uh, 8-Bit Hardware's website. I will add a link to the show notes if you want to check it out. I will uh, let you know that it is PAL only, and I'm kind of an NTSC guy, so I have not tried the Kung Fu Flash cartridge personally yet, but uh, it does look like a, a, a fun little uh, utility. I also saw a release this week of a Commodore 64 dictionary. Uh, this is the entire dictionary that has been uh, transferred over to work for the Commodore 64. It consists of 19 D81 disk images. So those are 1581 disk images, which, as you know, is quite a bit larger than uh, 1541 D64 or uh, uh, D71 images. So this is a lot of data. Um, I'm not sure why, but sometimes we don't ask why <laughs> we don't question the why it's just someone did it and we look at it and see if it works for us or not. So if you need a copy of the dictionary on the Commodore 64, for some reason, there you go. Somebody did it <laughs> and that is available for download off of, uh, itch uh, I did see that the uh, Shoot 'Em Up Construction Kit competition has begun. This year's competition, uh, the deadline for entry is April 30th. It is being run by Richard Bayless. Um, I will, again, add a link to uh, uh, the uh, entry if you want to create your own Shoot 'Em Up Construction Kit game. And uh, I have created some using the software. The software is not very difficult to use. And uh, all mine look like doo-doo, but uh, <laughs> it's amazing what people are able to crank out uh, with that software and all kinds of custom graphics and sounds and, and games that don't look like uh, they were created at all well, you know, with that little software package. So if you want to check that out, uh, again, I will add the link and you could go uh, check out the competition. And I look forward to the competition being over and getting to play a whole bunch of more free Commodore 64 games. Can't beat that. I saw two different previews for games uh, this week. One is Ghostbusters 2021, which I read about. And the other one is One-on-One, -on -One, uh, a remake of the original basketball game that appeared on early 8-bit computers. Uh, the Ghostbusters 2021 looks like um, a, a remake of the original Ghostbusters game. The graphics seem to be much larger and more detailed, so that looks like it'll be fun uh, when that is released. And one-on-one, uh, -on -one, I'm a huge fan of. I've covered one-on-one -on, -one on the podcast, and I will definitely be looking forward to the release of this uh, newly revised and graphical update. It looks like it plays just like the original one-on-one, -on -one, except for the you're now being able to, to uh, play on full-color um, outside basketball courts and things like that. So I'm pretty excited about that. So I will definitely be watching the uh, development of both of those titles. I am bringing back, I should add a drum roll here. I am bringing back the King of the Castle portion of Sprite Castle. Now, if you are a new listener and you don't remember the old uh, King of the Castle, the way it works is towards the end of every episode, I will play an 8-bit version of a song, and that song will be related to the episode, but will not be from the actual game. A lot of times, the uh, songs are, maybe the title may be related to the game in some way, or it may be a pun, or a play on the game or the game's theme. I'll give you an example. I do this anyway. I just haven't been accepting uh, uh, submissions from listeners. Uh, last week on You Don't Know Flack, uh, I reviewed The Mister. And the 8-bit song I played at the end of the episode was Kyrie from the band Mister. Mister. <laughs> so... I have a strange sense of humor, and you never know what the 8-bit song you will hear uh, played at the end of the episode is. So, if you would like to get in on the action, here's how it's going to work. And it's going to be slightly different than the way I did it before. The way I did it before was the first person who sent me a winning submission was the king of the castle for the next episode. But it wasn't very fair because I have listeners all across the globe. I have people in all different time zones and depending on when the episode is released and when people are able to listen, uh, you know, it was just difficult to make it fair for everybody. So uh, what I'm going to do is I will accept 
submissions from uh well obviously anybody who listens can send me you know their guess of what the song is and everybody that sends me the winning submission will be listed as a winner on next week's uh or on the next episode of sprite castle so the way that you can enter is you have to email me at rob o'hara at rob and you have to put king of the castle in the subject title um you know, I, lately I've been having a real hard time keeping up with incoming messages. I'm getting messages uh, through Facebook Messenger. I'm getting them left on the Facebook uh, page, the You Don't Know Robcast page. I get them on the voicemail. I get them on Twitter. I get them through DMs on Twitter. I get them through email. Uh, and I've I've got one that arrived from a, a homie pigeon. So the uh, so. I, I'm just having a hard time keeping track of all the incoming messages. And so this is the best way for me to make sure that I see your entry is again, emailing it to me at Rob O'Hara at Rob O'Hara.com and just put King of the castle in the subject line. And then that way it'll jump out and I will definitely see it. So uh, next week, uh, if you listen again to the end of this episode, there will be an eight bit song in there. And all you got to do is email me the title of that song and we will have a party, a virtual party for all of the, uh, Kings of the castle next week. So I know that was a popular thing on the podcast and I've got some emails asking me to bring it back, even though I've kind of been still doing the songs. I just haven't been calling them out. So I think this will be, um, uh, something kind of fun to do. Now I will, uh, tell you kind of tied in, you know, maybe the, the King of the Castle will in some way tie into the uh, uh, theme of the game that I've played. And not just the song, but uh, um, the uh, whatever we do, whatever we do, it'll be fun. And I got to tell you, uh, speaking of themes, the theme of this week's game is the Castles of Dr. Creep. Well, that's not the theme. <laughs> the name of this week's game is the Castles of Dr. Creep. And the theme is this uh, haunted game. And uh, I really did enjoy playing it this week. Um, the first level, you will experience mummies. And then on the second level, you will experience these tiny little Frankenstein monsters. And then on the third level, the very first room starts off, there's like 30 people standing in the room. Uh, not just mummies, not just Frankenstein, but also there's David Chambers, there's Paradroid, there's Matt Hill, there's C-Dubs, Carrie Clanton, Zeke Pabsky, Alan Hudgens, Mitsuyama, Aunt Page, Steve Sharippa, Mr. Bundy, Hermsky, Stephen Burt, Mike McLaughlin, Gary Heather, Darren Folds, Rydar Bow and Christopher Bow, Armadon Restall, Olaf Hope, David Hearns, John Schaller, Eric Strainisi, Matt Nicholson, Dave Zilly, Steve Rasmussen, Patrick Markey, Chris Folds, Garrett Allier, Scrap Arcade, Graham Vebke, Rick Reynolds, Scott Lambert, John Morrison, Mark Alley, Jake Nonamaker, John Treholt, Roy Jacobs, and the mysterious Cobra Kai. What a game that would be if you walked into a room and all those people were standing in the room. Obviously, those are not enemies that you will encounter in the castles of Dr. Creep. Those are my Patreon supporters. So thank you guys for supporting the show. If you would like to become a Patreon supporter and get all the behind the scenes blog posts and information and videos and all the fun stuff that we're doing, go check out patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara for more information. If you want to support the show, but you don't want to get involved in Patreon, don't forget some of the best things you could do are to share links to the episodes on social media and like and review on iTunes. If you'd like to send me feedback about this or any episode of Sprite Castle, you can email me at Rob O'Hara at Rob Contact me on Twitter at Commodore. Follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Robcasts. Catch me hanging out on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server or leave me a voicemail on the FLAC podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. And those are this week's headlines brought to you by my local paperboy who just crashed into a street gate. 
headline grade or what? Now that we've covered this week's headlines, let's discuss this week's snack. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Talking snack. This week's game has a bit of a haunted house theme to it. And unfortunately for me, Halloween has already passed. But over Halloween, my wife brought home three boxes of cereal just for me. Now, I have two teenage children, and cereal disappears. I mean, a box of cereal could disappear in a day or two around here. And so my wife brought home three boxes of cereal, pointed at every child, (laughs) everyone in the house, the cats, everyone, and said, listen, this is dad's cereal. Don't touch it. And it was three boxes of cereal. One was a box of Count Chocula. One was a box of Frankenberry, and one was a box of Booberry. I believe that these came from either Big Lots or Dollar General. I'm not sure who was carrying them during the holidays, but my wife knows that those three, I love monsters, I love uh, cereal, (laughs) and I love strange crossovers like that. Of course, I'm nostalgic about it. And my favorite of those three are Count Chocula. So I ate all the Frankenberry first. I like Frankenberry okay, not my favorite. And then I ate all the Booberry, which I was not a Booberry kid. Um, I'm, I don't even think they had it for a long time when I was a kid. But Count Chocula, I've said this before. I think I said this on, we did an episode of Throwback Reviews where Sean and I talked about our favorite cereals. And I believe I listed Count Chocula as my number one favorite cereal of all time. I love Count Chocula. I like the crunchy little chocolate parts. I like the chocolate marshmallows. And I like the chocolate milk that's left behind after you're done eating all the cereal. Um, I love Count Chocula. And so I saved Count Chocula to the very end. And I ate a couple of bowls of it. And then I just haven't been eating a lot of cereal lately. And as I was working on this week's episode, I was in the cupboard one day roaming around and I looked up and I saw my box of Count Chocolate and I went to pick it up and I thought, the minute I reached for it, I thought those kids better not ate my (laughs) Count Chocolate, but they didn't. It was still there. And so I made a big old bowl of Count Chocolate with the little bat shaped marshmallows. And uh, man, I just love, I'm so nostalgic about uh, a lot of things. And of course, seventies and eighties breakfast cereals is one of those things. And I just sat down with a big old bowl of Count Chocula. I ate my little cereal and then I ate my little marshmallows. And when I was done, I drank my little chocolate milk and had a little chocolate milk mustache. And I just had a great time. So, uh, if you want to, I don't know that they still have them. It might be off the shelves by now. I mean, it's, uh, we're a couple months past Halloween, so I don't know if they're still in stores or not, but, uh, if you want to play along this week, go get yourself some count chocolate cereal. And talking about vampires is a good segue into moving into this week's game, which is The Castles of Dr. Creep, which was published for the Commodore 64 in 1984 by Broderbund. It is a game for one or two players that uses joystick controls. The Castles of Dr. Creep was written by Edward R. Hobbs. Now, Mr. Hobbs doesn't seem to have done a lot of different games. There are two games listed prior to this one in Moby Games attributed to him. One is called Triad and one is called Sea Fox. Um, after this, there's a game called Snow Job, which is a 3DO game. It looks like he did a Windows game called Bust Out, which is a breakout style game. And he also has Carpet Golf VR attributed to him. So not a lot of titles, but he's been in the business for at least 20 years writing games. Uh, now Broderbund or Broderbund, as we discussed on the last episode has been covered. This is the third game from that company that's appeared on Sprite Castle on episode 44. We covered Load Runner, and then on episode 50, just a few episodes ago, we covered Karatika. So Broderbun is back once again, and I know, looking in the list, uh, that there are some more Broderbun titles uh, in the near future we will be talking about. 
So according to the text on the back of the game's box and also in the manual, you have been transferred to Transylvania by your company. And now that you're there, you're looking for a place to live. And so your company has organized a set of tours of 13 different castles for you to look at. Now, why you would be moving into a castle is not really explained in Transylvania, but that is the basis of this game. And so the setup is that you are supposedly touring each of these different castles and to beat a level or to win uh, each level, you have to visit every room that's in the castle, but you can't just go from room to room. There are puzzles that have to be solved for different things to be unlocked for you to access each of these rooms. And so that is the uh, basic description of the castles of Dr. Creep. Now I'm not entirely sure where the name or the background of this came from. I don't know that there was a, um, a huge renaissance of castle movies or anything. So I don't really know. And technically this game could really take place anywhere that they have things that are, uh, uh, themed, you know, castle themed in the game, but they could have been, you know, it could have been anything to be honest with you. Um, but, I don't know if the Dr. Creep in this episode is a reference to a television personality also known as Dr. Creep, uh, but we'll be talking about that Dr. Creep later on in the episode. But uh, anyway, the uh, the themes in the game aren't really horror-related, and it's not a scary-type game like the marketing or the title screen would have you believe. Uh, it's basically just a puzzle platform game. Now, looking at the box, uh, it really sells this idea that this is some sort of horror-type game. There's a, a picture or painting where you are looking out through a castle window. There are bars on the window and a rat sitting there. Now, there are no windows in this game or bars or rats, but uh, but it's a great picture. And there's kind of a gothic font that spells out the castles of Dr. Creep. Um, there's also a stamp on the front that says special feature, true two player action. And of course that was a selling point, um, you know, in the early eighties was two player simultaneous play that was starting to become a thing. And especially on systems like the Commodore 64 that had two joystick ports built in um, the back gives basically the backstory that I mentioned how you're touring Transylvania and that you're going to have to visit these 13 different locations and visit every room. It talks a little bit about the um, obstacles and the creatures that you will encounter, but it has three highlighted things at the very top of the list. The first one is 13 separate castles. The second says 200 rooms. And the third thing says sound effects slash haunting music. So again, this is 1984. So listing sound effects is a selling point uh, back then. Uh, the manual, again, restates the backstory that's on the back of the box and then goes into list all the different things that you'll encounter that are parts of the room and also the obstacles and the creatures that you will encounter. Uh, as far as parts of each room, there are doors, there are doorbells, there are ladders, and poles and locks and keys. So ladders can be moved up and down on poles. You can only slide down. And then of course, locked doors uh, have, you have to possess a key to be able to open the locked door. Uh, there are also several different devices, I suppose that you'll find in there. There are lightning machines that generate lightning. There are force fields, uh, ray guns, there are matter transmitters, which are basically teleportation boxes, uh, trap doors, and moving sidewalks. In addition to those things, there are also mummies and Frankensteins. Uh, this does refer to them as Frankensteins and not Frankenstein monsters, but eh. <laughs> we'll, we'll give it to them. And so each one of these things can be turned on or off or manipulated. So for example, the lightning machines have a switch. And so, uh, you can't bypass the lightning machine without getting shocked, but you have to go find the switch and turn it off. Uh, the force field has a button next to it, but all these things can become layered. So for example, the force field button might be 
blocked by a lightning machine, which has a <laughs> a switch that is hidden behind an area where you'll have to figure out how to get past a mummy. And so that's how these rooms become very complicated is uh, lots and lots of these obstacles piled on top of each other. And to figure out how to access, like get a key or get to a specific door that leads to a different room, uh, you'll have to figure out how to maneuver through the room in the right order. So the title screen pops up uh, first with a plain screen. It is a, a just a plain screen with text on it that says Broderbund Software presents the Castles of Dr. Creep by Ed Hobbs. Copyright 1984, Broderbund Software. Please allow two minutes for loading. <laughs> so, uh, you know, back then you definitely wanted to manage expectations. Let people know that it was going to take a minute for the game to load. Um, immediately after you press the space bar, you get another scene. And this is a, a, a drawing that is not very detailed. This is not uh, of the quality that we would come to expect of Commodore games later on. It is a castle up on a hill. Um, it's all the uh, the fill colors on the hill are kind of those strange old school dithering um, so it, it looks, um, the drawing looks a bit amateurish, I will say. Uh, again, you've got the castle up on top of the mountain. You have the castles of Dr. Creep written. You have the Broderbund, uh, triple crown logo. And then of course, in front of the castle, there is a sign that says for sale. Um, once the game has loaded and you've waited two minutes, you get another title screen, which says the castles of Dr. Creep by Ed Hobbs. And then you can see a bunch of castle doorways. And at this point, the game will begin into a demo mode uh, or kind of a slideshow, which goes through and shows you what some of the different obstacles uh, are. But at this point, this is where you can start the game. Now, if you just start, well, <laughs> to start the game, you press the fire button and if you press it on joystick one, you start a one-player game. If you press the fire button on joystick two, you automatically start a two-player game. So if you have the joystick in the wrong port and press the fire button, you will start a two-player game and <laughs> you'll have to start all over. So I uh, found that one out the hard way. Now, if you start the game, uh, by default, you press the fire button and you will be launched into a tutorial, which is a series of rooms that are connected and each one shows you one of the obstacles that you will face in the game. So it'll show you ladders and says, here's how you go up and down ladders. And you, you take your little character and you walk up and down ladder and then go out the exit. And this is how a doorbell works. And this is how the poles work. And you go through all these things. Um, and then when you're all done, it takes you back to the main menu. And if you press the fire button, it will just start the demo mode again. Now, I don't know if this is true or not. This is a theory that I came up with this week. Um, but to choose the castle, to choose one of the 13 castles to begin the game, you have to press the run-stop key, which if you're using uh, WinVice, like I use a lot, uh, the Commodore 64 emulator, that is mapped to the caps lock key. Um, run-stop was not a normal key that you normally use. I mean, sometimes you used it in programming, uh, run, stop, restore kind of work like uh, control break to exit out of things. But very rarely do I remember anything telling me to press the run, stop key. And so as I was trying to get this game started before reading the manual, I went through all the normal keys that you would press to start a game. I went through all the function keys. I hit, you know, all the number keys. I hit the space bar. I hit the inner, I hit all these things. And so I had to go look at the manual and figure out that you hit the run stop, which brings up another menu that allows you to choose which of the 13 castles you want to play. Um, this is not really intuitive. And I wonder if it was put in there as kind of a thwart to pirates because I kind of seem to remember as a kid playing this and not figuring out how to get uh, to the, the castles that you were supposed to play. So maybe that's why they did it. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. But it, it's a it's an odd choice of keys. Uh, every other game in the world would have chosen, you know, F1 or Enter or Spacebar or something like that. So regardless, 
After you press run stop, you will be presented with a menu that contains the demo and then all 13 castles. And of course, the castles have names like Carpathia and Romania and Baskerville. And the last one is called Lovecraft. So they all have these horror theme names, but it doesn't really tell you anything about the actual levels. Now, at the same menu, you can choose whether or not you want to have unlimited men in the game. If you don't choose that, you only have three lives. Now, the game is not really based on score. The game is based on time, and it's how much time does it take you to go through a complete castle and visit every single room in the castle. But if you have unlimited men, it will not save your high score. So you can only save your initials or save your high time if you select that you want three men and not the unlimited amount of men. So the controls of Castles of Dr. Creep are pretty simple. Use the joystick to move around. Uh, Again, you know, this is a platform game, so every level has multiple platforms. So you're definitely going to be running left and right. You'll be going up and down ladders, and then you'll be sliding down Uh, poles. You press the button to interact with objects. This could be anything from picking up a key to ringing a doorbell to flipping switches. So you use the button uh, quite a bit. Run Stop also pauses the game while you're playing. So if you want to uh, pause a level and uh, pause your time, you can hit Run Stop and you can pause the game. Uh, The Restore button will kill all the players. (laughs) So this is a button that you don't want to accidentally find uh, while you're pressing around on the keyboard, seeing what happens. But uh, it is easy to get this game into unwinnable states. Uh, You can get yourself stranded in an area, you know, slide down a pole onto a dead end. And now there's no way to get And especially if you're playing by yourself and not a two player version, you can get yourself in an area where a trap traps you, but it doesn't kill you. And so uh, if that happens, you'll have to hit restore to kill yourself and restart that level. Not as big of a deal if you're playing with unlimited men, but if you're playing with three men, uh, it's pretty annoying. So again, the goal of the castles of Dr. Creep is to work your way through all these different castles and each castle is a series of interconnected rooms. And there can be each platform room. I mean, each room consists of multiple platforms and there can be doors uh, and, and multiple doors on the left, on the right, on the top and on the bottom. And so, uh, for example, let's say the bottom of the first room, there are three doors. So you go through the first door. Well, now you go into the next room of the map, but it's a dead end. So now you have to open that door and go back up and then go over to the middle door and go down. And that's the door. So there's no way of really telling what's the right door and what's the wrong door. And in fact, on the very first level of the game, there are three doors to choose from. And if you choose the bottom door, uh, you'll get killed. There's a, a roving laser and there's no way off the platform you've just walked into and the laser gun will come up and shoot you and you're dead. So... Um, it's definitely a game that lets you know right off the bat that things are not going to be, uh, easy or fair. And so because there are so many doors to get into each room and that's part of the actual puzzle, uh, you end up backtracking a lot in this game and you backtrack so often in this game. I'll I'll give you an example. Like you may, um, what it reminded me of is when I first started doing Sudoku puzzles, and I know that there's a, you know, all Sudoku puzzles are supposed to be able to solve, be able to to, uh, be solved through logic. You're not supposed to have to guess. But when I first started doing them, occasionally I would guess, like I would get to a, a part in the puzzle and say, well, it could be either a number one or a number two. And then you would guess one. And then from there you work forward. Okay. Well, if that was a one, now this has to be this. And so you would go through 10 moves and then get to a point where you've, you've made it unsolvable. And now you've got to erase and go all the way back to where that point is. The castles of Dr. Creep constantly feels like that. It constantly feels like you go through a door 
And that leads to a room, and that room has a door, and you go through that room, and then that has a door, and you go to that room, and then you get to a dead end, and now you have to backtrack three rooms and try a different door. But what I found was I was constantly losing track of where I was supposed to be going. So by the time I would go back two rooms, I would go, maybe I'll just try this other door, and I would forget why I was backtracking or when I was backtracking, when I got to the point, I forgot what path I had taken or what paths I hadn't taken. And I would end up doing the same thing multiple times. So, um, you know, maybe I guess if you were to do mapping on a piece of paper, um, that might be, uh, more beneficial, you know, or or easier way to beat some of the levels or whatever. But I just felt like I was doing the same thing over and over. Now, as I mentioned on the front of the box, it says it supports true two player action. And so a lot of the levels are designed. I I think every level can technically be beaten by one person, but I'll give you an example. In in the first level, there's a a part of the, uh, one of the rooms where there's a laser gun. And so you have to, you find these controls to move the gun all the way down to the bottom. And once the gun is all the way at the bottom, you have to exit out a door. You have to make your way through like three rooms and get up to the very top and turn off a switch. The minute the switch is off, you have to go back through all those three rooms and go back to the bottom and grab the key. Now that the gun is at the top or at the bottom and you have to keep doing this over and over. Now, if you had two players, One person could stand at the bottom controlling the gun and one person could be at the top turning the switches and getting things on. So you could do it with one person, but it is a lot more legwork. Um, I watched some walkthroughs because I thought, surely I'm doing some of this wrong. Like the first level of this game can't be this hard. And I I watched a walkthrough and the first level... Uh, on this guy's walkthrough, he beats level one in about 14 minutes. Uh, and I think there are 13 rooms in the first castle. So, you know, it takes a while to get to all these rooms. But level two, it takes him over an hour. <laughs> and there are 13 levels to this game. So um, I looked at some of the, I looked at the list of, high scores online where people have tracked their high scores. And I would say half the levels in this game, the best time that you could get is half an hour. So there's a lot of gameplay here. uh, And you have to really, really like puzzle games to enjoy the castles of Dr. Creep. Another thing that I found interesting was the levels aren't really sorted in any sort of order. Again, they're random names and it's, not like the first one is the easiest and the last one is the hardest. It just depends on, um, and and maybe, maybe saying easiest and hardest isn't right more than saying the quickest and the longest. Like there are a couple in the middle that take more than an hour to complete. Whereas there was one level that I was able to beat in about five minutes. So, um, yeah, they're not really sorted. And so, Again, there's not anything, all the levels basically look the same. They're all the same color. They all have the same obstacles. They're just arranged in different ways. So it would have been nice maybe to have different colored backgrounds or borders or something to differentiate them so that whenever you saw them, you could say, oh, this is an easier one or, or this is a, a harder level. Um, so as I kept playing this game, the castles of Dr. Creep, one of the things I wanted, I was trying to find the backstory of this game. You know, I Googled, uh, the author's name. I couldn't find anything about Edward Hobbs. I couldn't find any interviews with him or anything, but I did find some information about someone named Dr. Creep. Now, Dr. Creep was a character played by Barry Lee Hobart, who lived in Dayton, Ohio. He worked at WKEF as a cameraman and a control operator. Uh, there was a, a lull in the weekend ratings at the uh, television station, and they were looking for ideas on ways to boost their uh, ratings, or specifically their Saturday night ratings. And so Barry Lee Hobart pitched a show that would uh, play on Saturday nights, And he said he would, well, he didn't really pitch himself, but he pitched this idea of a character named Dr. Death. 
and he would show B movies and Dr. Death. He showed up uh, with a, wearing a monk's robe and he had vampire teeth in and he had painted his face like a skull. And the executives were like, you know, this isn't a bad idea, but let's tone it down a little bit. And so basically they just put gray face paint on him in this beard and a kind of a stovetop hat or a stovepipe hat, I guess. And, um, renamed him from Dr. Death to Dr. Creep. And the name of the show was Shock Theater, which ran in Ohio from 1972 until 1985. And then the show came back later from 1991. Oh, no, I'm sorry, 1999 to 2005 on cable access where he just showed public domain movies. Um, But uh, apparently he was a big staple in Ohio. And so I wonder if Ed Hobbs, the, the man who programmed this game was from Ohio or knew someone from Ohio and uh, had heard of Dr. Creep. I don't know the answer to that. Now, back to uh, uh, Barry Lee Hobart's Dr. Creep. There is a uh, a different version of Ghostbusters, if you're familiar with uh, 80s cartoons. There's a Filmation had a version of Ghostbusters, which was not uh, the same as the, the movie. Uh, and they had a character on one of their episodes called Dr. Creep, which looked a lot like the Dr. Creep from Shock Theater. So he was well known in the uh, in horror circles. He made a lot of appearances at uh, uh, conventions. And in fact, in 2011... Dr. Creep was inducted into the first class of the Horror Host Hall of Fame alongside Vampira, the Cool Ghoul, Morgus the Magnificent, and Sammy Terry. So there you go. I don't know if uh, the Dr. Creep that was on television was an inspiration to the programmer who made the castles of Dr. Creep, but you know what? I think the world is big enough for two Dr. Creeps. There's something I never thought I would have to pluralize, Dr. Creeps. Reviews of this game are very, very positive. Uh, Telematch gave this game 100. The Video Game Critic gave this game 100. Commodore User gave this game 5 out of 5. Lemon64 has a rating of 8.4, which is pretty high rating for Lemon64. Your Commodore Magazine gave it 8 out of 10. Home Computing Weekly gave it 4 out of 5. The one outlier is Zap, who gave it a 65 out of 100, who said that the puzzles were fun and entertaining, but uh, they were not impressed with the game's graphics and sound, which I can agree with. Um, But this game is, I would say, I don't want to say a product of its time, but it is locked into its time in history. This game is locked into 1984. And what do I mean by that? Well, An easier example is to talk about uh, text adventures. And if you've played old text adventures, you know that they were very quick to kill players. Um, Same thing goes for the early Sierra games. If you remember the original King's Quest, the original King's Quest would kill you constantly. Every time you went to a new screen, there might be a monster show up and kill you or Or, um, you know, I mean, those games, there was a term called insta-death. And these games uh, would constantly just kill you and make you either load a saved, uh, you know, a game that you had saved prior to death or start over. And over time, players got tired of that. And players decided they would not put up with that. And players stopped buying games that did that to them. And so now in the new style uh, of interaction, interactive fiction, which is, you know, a direct derivative of text adventures, we don't do that. And I say we, because I've written a, a couple of interactive fiction games, which are all terrible, but um, you know, it generally the, the collective, we, we don't do that and they don't do that to players anymore. Um, it, it's not, you know, there are certain things of those early games that just weren't fun. Guessing the verb was not fun. When you had, you know, a bathtub full of water and a pail and a fire, and you know what you want to do, you want to put the water in the pail and you want to throw the water at the fire. And then having to spend 30 minutes, you know, 
Get water. Nope, can't do that. <laughs> Put water in what? In bucket. What about the bucket? I mean, it's like a who's on first. Uh, you know, so uh, that stuff wasn't fun. And so that's what interactive fiction has done uh, today, you know, is they've taken away all those things that that took away from the gameplay that were frustrating uh, players to the point where they weren't playing that genre of games any longer. And so Castles of Dr. Creep, to me, is kind of like that. Now, it's there aren't things about it that, that make it unplayable. And in fact, if you're a fan of puzzle games, I highly recommend this game. Um, but the puzzles in this game are simple puzzles that you would have come up with in 1984, not in 2004 or 2014. Uh, the puzzles in this game... You know, there are 10 obstacles, let's say. And so an easy level has one or two and the harder levels just have all 10. Uh, so it's not that the puzzle is harder. It's just that it takes longer and then it's more frustrating. Uh, I don't know that I saw a level that I didn't understand how to solve. It was just whether or not I was willing to spend an hour doing it. Um, so it, it, does have i don't know how well it's aged but if you do like puzzle type games um you know you might still like it i don't know but um uh but it definitely hasn't you know if this was a new puzzle game it would not be like this that i guess that's the best way to say this now uh castles of dr creep is uh one of my favorite types of games that i review and that is that it's a commodore 64 exclusive it was not ported to any other system it was uh again programmed by one guy it was produced by broderbun and it was released only for the commodore 64 now there were no official sequels. However, there are two very well-known sequels, and those are The Dungeons of Dr. Creep and Castles of Dr. Creep 3. Now, those were both fan-made games that were widely circulated, and they are everything about those games is identical to the original except for the layout of the castles. So essentially you can think of them almost as, you know, a, uh, a add on level pack for the originals, but they weren't uh, officially endorsed by Broderbun. I believe from what I found, they were created using a utility called editor of Dr. Creep, which was a level editor that someone made that allowed you to create your own levels for this game. Now, unfortunately, editor of Dr. Creep appears to have been lost to time. And if you Google editor of Dr. Creep, uh, there's only one hit and it's to a story that says this has been lost to time. So I already looked it up for you. Don't, don't bother. Um, but, uh, so I think these other games were made using that utility, but, uh, yeah, it doesn't, unfortunately it doesn't seem like the, um, utility exists any longer. So normally, because this was only released for the Commodore 64, I would say if you want to play this game, you're going to need uh, some sort of Commodore 64 system and a copy of this game. But there is another way to play this game because uh, about five years ago, Ed Hobbs reverse engineered. Now, Ed Hobbs was the original programmer, but he did not have the source code, apparently. He reverse engineered the game and ported it to Steam. And so uh, in 2016, the Castles of Dr. Creep was released on Steam, and so uh, it is still there, and it is $1.99. So if you would like to uh, own this game on Steam and you don't have a Commodore 64 or can't find the D64 image, I can't imagine any of those things are true, but if you did want to own it on Steam, you can go on Steam, look up the Castles of Dr. Creep, and buy it for $1.99. If you want to own an actual copy for the Commodore 64, it may cost you a few more dollars. I only found one recent auction where it had sold, and this was a loose, floppy disk of the game, and it sold for $10. I don't know that this game sold huge amounts of numbers, and so it doesn't seem to show up on auction sites very frequently. So I don't know what a complete, there's one complete copy for sale for like 300 something dollars, which is ridiculous. Nobody would pay that. But um, so I don't know what a complete copy would actually bring, but um, it doesn't seem like any have shown up on eBay in a while. So who knows? And now let's talk about my personal memories of the castles of Dr. Creep. All right, time. 
Before going back and playing the game this week, I thought I remembered this game. I thought it involved, I knew it was a two-player game that took place in a castle. And I thought it involved running around and, and laying down crosses and having animals or snakes and things chase you and zombies. But that's not the castles of Dr. Creep. That's Realm of Impossibility, which uh, is a game that I'm very familiar with. But somehow I got, got those two mixed up. Uh, and Realm of, Realm of Impossibility is a two-player simultaneous game. The levels are much shorter uh, and easier to navigate. So, But there are some similarities uh, to the two games, so I think maybe that's why I had those mixed up. I also had read that The Castles of Dr. Creep was a puzzle-style game, and so when I loaded it up, it did not look familiar, and I realized that I was thinking of The Castles of Dr. Brain, which is a much later release. I believe that is a Sierra release uh, for the PC in the mid-90s, so not related to this game. Uh, so when I did finally load up and see Castles of Dr. Creep, uh, it does look vaguely familiar. This is not a game that I played a lot as a kid, and I gotta think that those weird keys like pressing run-stop to access a menu might have prevented me to play it because, as you may know, if I had a copy of this, it was not an original, so I probably didn't get the instructions either. Um, I do, like I said, I, it does look vaguely familiar, um, but the I would say platform games in general, the in the 80s, the puzzle wasn't the platform itself, and that's what this game is. So if you think about a game like Keystone Capers, uh, Keystone Capers is a game where you run through a toy store, um, you jump over obstacles, you avoid obstacles, but that in and of itself is not the point of the game. The point of the game is to capture a thief who's running away from you. And so navigating through the rooms is just what you have to do to catch the thief. If you think about a game like Jumpman, uh, you know, there are vines that you go up, vines, you go down, there are ladders, uh, there are bullets that shoot at you. Those are all part of the, the platform level, but that's not the goal. The goal is to pick up those little orange things. I forget what they are, if they're bombs or pumpkins or whatever they're supposed to be. Um, that's the goal of the level. And so that's kind of what makes Castles of Dr. Creep a unique game is the the levels are the game. Figuring out how to move from room to room is the actual game. You know, I even think about Impossible Mission where you go from room to room, but in the room, there are computers that you have to search to find puzzle pieces. And so this doesn't have that element. And so, you know, I think if you enjoy the puzzle aspect of it in and of itself, you'll enjoy this game, but it's definitely not as deep as a lot of other games that were released around the same time. For graphics, I give Castles of Dr. Creep 3 out of 5 mummies. Uh, they are colorful, but everybody is basically little stick figures and there's not a lot of detail to anything. For music, I will also give the game 3 out of 5 mummies. Uh, the music is not annoying, but it's certainly not very advanced. Sound effects again, 3 out of 5 mummies. For overall gameplay, I will give this game 4 out of 5 mummies. Uh, with the caveat that this game will appeal to uh, those who like puzzle levels. So if you're a puzzle-style game enthusiast and you like trying to solve puzzles to be able to get from one place to another, uh, then this game may appeal to you. It definitely has an old-school design and may not have aged well. And if you find the idea of spending a lot of time backtracking over and over to the same rooms to do the same things over and over, then this might not be the game for you. Thanks again for tuning in to Sprite Castle. If you'd like to send me feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me at robohara at robohara.com, contact me on Twitter at Commodore, follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcasts, 
Catch me hanging out on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server or leave me a voicemail on the Flag Podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. If you'd like to support this show and gain access to behind-the-scenes blog posts and other bonus features, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara to learn more. Sprite Castle is available from iTunes, the Sprite Castle RSS feed at podcast.roboohara.com, and through the Amigos podcast feed at anchor.fm forward slash Amigos podcast. To hear more podcasts from me, check out You Don't Know Flack, Cactus Flax, Throwback Reviews, and Multiple Sadness. You can find links to all of these shows at podcast.roboohara.com. Many of the news articles and game details for Sprite Castle come from websites such as Commodore News, Indie Retro News, Vintage is the New Old, the Commodore Scene Database, Lemon64, and Moby Games. Thanks again for listening. Now get back to touring castles, and we'll see you here next time on Sprite Castle.